actor-director Olivia Wilde had done an interview. I don't know if you both heard of, the, of, of this yet, but she did an interview for her movie Don't Worry Darling, and she said the following. I'm going to quote her here. Incels are basically disenfranchised, mostly white men, who believe they are entitled to sex from women, and they believe that society has now robbed them, that the idea of feminism is working against nature, and that we must be put back into the correct place. Does something like that have potentially more of a negative consequence in, cre- in creating the possibility of more young men who feel disenfranchised to, again, just align themselves with this, who maybe wouldn't have been originally? Or does it serve a purpose of getting this narrative out into the community? What do you think? Welcome to The Neutral Ground. This week, we have a somewhat emotionally charged topic to discuss, incels and incel culture. Now, I want to be upfront with you so that you know what you're in for, should you choose to continue to listen to what I think is a fascinating conversation with two professionals who have actually done the difficult research work. Me and my guests take a neutral ground approach to the topic. We look at the potential dangers, potential solutions, and we show compassion for what we all agreed upon was a situation that these young men can't possibly be happy about. We discuss actress-director Olivia Wilde's comments about incels in regard to her movie Don't Worry Darling, and I was surprised to find that all three of us were in agreement about whether or not it was a good idea for her to do so. I particularly enjoyed this conversation and walked away feeling better about the future, even though it ends on a bit of a comedic, pessimistic note. That's going to make more sense when you listen to the episode. I have more to say about this topic in my closing remarks, but let me introduce my guests. Dr. Sarah Daly is a criminologist and former associate professor. She currently works for a private consulting firm, but she continues her incel research through an affiliate faculty position with SUNY Oswego. She's the co-founder and co-editor of the Journal of Mass Violence Research. Dr. Sean Reed is an assistant professor in the Department of Sociology and Criminal Justice at Old Dominion University. His research focuses on gender and crime, victimization, and criminal justice responses to victimization. He has published in outlets such as Child Abuse and Neglect, Sex Roles, Feminist Criminology, and sexuality and culture. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Sarah Daly and Dr. Sean Reed. Sarah, Sean, welcome to The Neutral Ground. So we're going to be talking about a topic that, in my opinion, is still you know, rather unknown, I think, and, and not very well understood, and that is this incel community idea. But before we can dive into your, your fantastic article, and I'm going to put a, a link to the article as well in the episode notes so people can, you know, get even more uh, out of your, your study than, than what we can talk about today, I'd like to first set, let's try to get an understanding for the audience. How would you describe an incel? What, what is it exactly? Um, So I guess I'll jump in. Thanks for having us. This is exciting. Um, So an incel uh, or incel as a term is a portmanteau for involuntary celibate or involuntarily celibate. And it speaks to uh, a group of men's experiences who have had trouble kind of socially and romantically in finding relationships. So there's a lot of focus on the sexual intercourse element of this, but what we've seen as we can talk about that a lot of these troubles and struggles relate to other aspects of their life too. But largely speaking, these are men who um, are virgins. They've never had a girlfriend. Many of them have never um, kissed a woman, held hands with a woman, um, or even hugged a woman. So they've had all of these struggles and it really, um, affects their self-esteem and how they view themselves relative to other groups of men. I was just going to add on to that with an incel, you know, I think a lot of people tend to have the image of like the computer geek behind the computer. You know, we typically think of like a younger white man, 
But like what Sarah's found in some of her work is that there's actually quite a breadth of when it comes to like racial and cultural diversity. It seems like there's a lot of clustering around like sort of Western society and Western nations of where you might find incels, but it's a lot more broad probably than the image that a lot of listeners and just a lot of the public in general have in their head of who that might be. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to speak with you both uh, about your article and your work, because you really do a fantastic job of laying out. One, I, I love the fact that you are very precise. You, you try to be very precise with your definition, which is so important, you know. Um, but also you, you lay out this idea of, I think you kind of break down a little bit of that image that you just mentioned, Sean, and you say, let's, let's look at this as a concept that can be applied across, you know, racial barriers, across, you know, things that to try to stop us from having that gamer kind of look or idea. And something that I didn't know until I read your article is that there are kind of two origin stories here for this phenomenon a little bit. The first is this idea of love shyness, which you pinpoint in your article as going as far back as in like literature in the 1700s, which I thought was fascinating. But you also mentioned the, the work of uh, Brian Gilmartin in the 1980s with kind of shy man syndrome. And then you have this 1990s discussion board movement. And it, it's called the, uh, and tell me if I have this correct, the uh, Alana's Involuntary Celibate, Celibacy Project. And that's when things start to shift a little bit toward a very specifically male-oriented kind of grouping. So can you uh, both just talk a little bit about this fan this uh, very interesting historical background that you discovered? Sean, do you want to jump in? Sure, yeah. <laughs> so it's a really interesting origin because it almost went from being somewhat gender neutral. Uh, that original discussion forum, that discussion board, wasn't meant to be gendered in any way. It was just a place for people that were feeling like as though you know, they were failing it at sexual relationships or intimate relationships, or it felt like their intimate relationships had kind of fizzled out, be that in the bedroom or just in intimacy as a whole. So it was just sort of a collective space for people to feel like they could talk through some of these issues, almost like, I guess you could say, like finding solace in other people who are going through the same issues. But, you know, as things on the internet tend to be, they tend to shift and morph over time and don't really stay true to what they originally were. And we just saw that, you know, in the mid 2000s, where the internet really exploded, and there was access to different discussion boards and everything, things like Reddit and, and um, AOL rooms and stuff like that, it was just so easy for people to build these groups. And that's when we start to see that things become a bit more gendered, we have these massive changes in society where we're questioning things like gender norms or norms around sexuality. There's this pro proliferation of all this because we have access to so much more information that that's when you kind of see men start to glom onto this idea of involuntary celibacy and how masculinity pushes a certain way, but feeling like there's a disconnect between what society wants and the opportunities available to some men. Yeah. And I think to add on to that, the idea of, kind of more broadly, men feeling inadequate is certainly not new. Um, it's just a matter of how it looks and the various iterations of it over time. Yeah, and, and something that I didn't think about until just now here, this, this the ways that digital communities, how they can actually build, I mean, these in incredible structures where people feel really safe. When I spoke with... Um, Dr. Christopher Bartell, I hope I have this, he wrote a book about video gaming and violence, and he was trying to look at, okay, what's really going on here? And at the very end of our conversation, it wasn't so much that he was worried about people consuming violence on video games. He was actually more worried about cultures growing in video gaming that could possibly shift entire groups of people toward very negative results. Oh, yeah. I think we see that in any kind of community, that what the expected norms are, kind of in how people succeed socially in those groups. And that's probably one of the most concerning things 
that people tend to think about incels is that if you go on these incel forums, um, a lot of the language they use, the terminology, the topics they discuss, the ones that stick out to people the most, um, normies, if you will, non-incels, the ones that stick out to people the most are the ones related to violence and misogyny and racism, um, which are almost kind of like currency and just kind of accepted interactions within these communities, whether or not people do believe that or say that or act like that in real life. Yeah, it's really interesting because like Sarah said, you see a lot of this like inflammatory language and that's what people tend to glom onto, but they're also just very sad spaces. And I don't want to excuse like anything that's said or any of the behaviors that come out of this, but it kind of does highlight the issue of gender norms and how we push, you know, men act this way, men need to accomplish this. But when it someone does feel like they are legitimately failing at those goals and they're trying all these different approaches and then you tie that into, you know, a lot of the bullying that's faced by people in this community, both through like their own day-to-day interactions and online, it really perpetuates this almost like toxic fatalist mindset that tends, I feel like, to get a little bit overlooked in comparison to that inflammatory language. Yeah, yeah I you're mean, both even... taking this. Oh, please go ahead. Oh yeah, sorry. So, you know, I I've done activities in my classes in which I showed typically graduate students some of the forums and I just let them kind of make their way around the different topics. And when I ask them afterwards, what is it that you noticed most? They really want to talk about the language that they heard. I won't repeat any of it on here because it's pretty foul. My mom gets upset. <laughs> um, you know, they remember they remember that like anti-Semitic comments or derogatory names for women. And then I say, now go back and look for discussions about really severe depression and really severe suicidality. Um, and then they say, oh, I, I missed that because there were other curse words that I've never seen before, you know? So I think that's not the fun part that people like to go on and look for. I think um, it's more interesting to see how heinous people think they can be while really overlooking the saddest parts of it. I'm so glad you both are talking about this because actually this is, this is a, a part of the discussion that I wanted to, to bring up a little bit later on as well was there are two parts to this that should interest all of us who take part in society. One is that you can't allow this to go completely unchecked. You can't because there is a, a possibility of violence here that's connected with the research. But at the same time, there's a kind of suffering going on here too with these individuals that we need to be aware of so that we can try to head it off and try to stop it at the very least to stop it from growing beyond where it is right now. So I'm, I'm, I'm very glad that you, you're both bringing this up. There's a, there's a concept that you mentioned in, in the paper that sort of starts to set up this mindset for how these individuals group together in their thinking. And it's this idea of red pilling, blue pilling, and then black pilling. Can you, can you talk about these concepts? What are they and how do they start to lead these individuals down this pathway of, of grouping into incel, you know, sections? Do you want to tackle that one, Sarah? <laughs> Not sure. Um, so I think the idea of red pill, blue pill kind of came about in the broader manosphere. Um, and it's related to a very short scene in the Matrix. Um, it, it's amazing how this, these ideas have grown from like not a central point of this movie. Um, but the idea of the blue pill is just kind of going about your business, assuming that the world is great, everything's fine. Um, and red pilling is realizing that there's, you know, things that are wrong um, and kind of having not a, not a negative view of things, but at least recognizing it. Um, whereas that recognizing that there is a, a problem or that there are problems can then lead to solutions. Um, incels, on the other hand, um, kind of in their own broader space in the manosphere, um, incels recognize that 
looks or um, physical appearance matter most. And they point to a lot of scientific studies about attraction and relationships and psychology. Um, and they use that as evidence of the black pill that uh, scientifically speaking, so they say, um, if looks matter most, there is nothing they can do to change this short of plastic surgery. Um, and thus it's, I think like what Sean said before about being kind of a fatalist outlook, that there's nothing they can do. Um, those who really do prescribe to the black pill would argue that, you know, blue pilled people are just ignoring and reality and trying things that won't work over time. Um, and that red pill people will try to fix things, but they won't. But incels believe in their hearts that uh, nothing will change their situation. So they're just kind of stuck with this. And I think that's reflected in some of the, the surveys that we've seen on forums where incels believe, most incels believe that their situation is permanent, that this is a lifelong affliction that can't be changed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, with the blue pill, it generally it's like, you know, most of us would recognize there's gender inequality and some of that plays into benefiting us versus others. But with the red pill, it's like you understand that process exists, that there is a gender imbalance. It's just a belief that it's like when it comes to these like intimate relationships, women are seen, at least in heterosexual relationships, as more privileged. You know, they're the ones making the choice on whether or not to go out with a guy or sleep with a guy or whatever it might be. And so for people that are red pilled, it's like, okay, well, I can play this game. I can play into these rules and I can find a way to be sexually or intimately successful with someone. Whereas the black pill, it's like Sarah said, like, there's no point in me playing the game because I just don't, you know, I don't have the means in which to play the game. So I'm just screwed when it comes to these processes. I'm always going to lose. Yeah, I found it, uh, again, something that I, I didn't know was this this idea that they don't just resent women, they, they also resent men as well. And they even have a term for this, a chad. And, and I'm curious about, so can you, can you talk a little bit about how, how do the, does that ideal male figure play a role here in this as well? Sure. Yeah, I'm happy to tackle that one. So it, they're almost seen as like, when they talk about chads, it's like, picture who as society would say is like the attractive alpha male, you know, someone that's confident, usually they're muscular, they have just naturally attractive features, whether that be like good hair, jawline, um, maybe they're taller, you know, just broader shoulders, something along those lines. And the perception is by people that are blackpilled is that this person's always going to be sexually successful. They're always going to be the one that's chosen by the woman. Now, interestingly, they have the term Stacy's for women, which is, you know, what you would expect when it comes to like Western standards of beauty. Um, but the idea is that no matter what I do, I'll never fully fit those Chad like features, you know, even if I were say to be able to get plastic surgery or go to the gym and exercise and get in shape or whatever, I don't have maybe necessarily like those social skills, that natural confidence that comes along with being able to be sexually successful or having people find you attractive. Cause you know, attractiveness is part physicality, but it's also part personality too. And it's thinking that there's just a natural deficit in personality and physical attractiveness and perhaps even social skills. You know, a lot of them say that they, um, you know, are diagnosed with autism or something along those lines where they may not have as strong of communicative abilities in social situations. Yeah, I think whether incels recognize it or not, this notion of a Chad as being this ideal male um, really falls in line with the research that's been done over the past, you know, many decades that we mentioned in the article about hegemonic masculinity, that there are these standards. Um, and I do want to point out, I think this is kind of a mistaken idea about masculinity in general, that hegemonic masculinity, while it is related to appearance and, and personality too, there are positive elements to it, like, you know, independence and kind of a protector status among men. 
um, but then that it also subordinates other men. So incels really are this subordinated group of men relative to um, these chads that represent hegemonic masculinity and expected manhood. Um, so I don't know if they realize how theoretically accurate some of their some of their beliefs are. Um, but I think a lot of people, and this isn't to kind of validate what they're saying, but a lot of people write off their ideas about Chads and Stacys um, without really recognizing that even if you're not a self-proclaimed card-carrying incel, um, unattractive people or people with um, kind of other social deficits do struggle in the dating arena and social arena. There, again, this kind of goes back to our, our discussion a little bit before this even with this idea of there is something here of a, of a bit of a of a, a suffering if you see it, right? That they very much are trapped in these idealized pictures of Stacy's and, and Chad's. And also in many ways too, that we have, you know, we still have things in our cultures that say there should be idealized Stacy's and Chad's. And so when you put those two things together, you can start to understand how someone could be kind of imprisoned by these ideas that, look, I'm never going to be that. So what's the point? And and you mentioned this idea of a fatalism too, right? Because there is, I was thinking about this as I was reading your article and, you know, the, the philosopher du jour today is, is Nietzsche. Everybody loves talking about Nietzsche. And, and I was wondering, there is a kind of will to power going on here, though, a little bit, in the sense that, so for Nietzsche, power never ends, or the will to it never ends. You simply find the next thing to overcome. And so you're kind of trapped even in that will to power. Part of me started thinking that these young men are also trapped in that kind of will to power loop where all they ever eventually see are Stacy's and Chad's. That's it. You Because it doesn't, you can set up your idealized human being with the jawline and the hairline and all of that stuff, but it's pretty easy to label someone one of these things if you simply need to find something to overcome. That's sort of the irony of it that I always find of the frustration of being kind of at the bottom of the masculine hierarchy and saying like, well, it's these men that succeed. It's these men that meet these characteristics, but by so hyper-focusing on who they deem as chads, they're sort of strengthening that gender hierarchy. Like they're, they're maintaining holding those men up in society because they're the ones that are constantly saying like, well, this is what I would strive to be. If I was that, then I would be, you know, sexually successful or have a relationship or whatever. But there's none of that inward thought of like, well, if I could change things about myself, I might find a niche in this hierarchy that might not be at the top, but I'm still in there somewhere. But by focusing so much on, oh, I don't have the jawline or I just don't have the personality for it or whatever, they're sort of privileging the people that do naturally have those things. Right. That one can't exist without the other. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and I, I think that with Stacy's and Chad's too, I, I hate to use the terminology, um, but I think these are all things with which most people would agree. Anybody that's been on online dating apps, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, that attractive people will be more successful on dating apps. These are things that we would agree with um, and that unattractive people will have fewer swipes um, but I think because incels have gotten the reputation that they have, it's very easy for people to dismiss or downplay everything that they say or things that they argue. Um, so, you know, just because an incel said it or they talk about it online, we want to pretend like they're not things that we disagree with um, or that we agree with. And so as someone who is single for a woefully long time, um, you know, I, I tell people I never woke up as a woman and was like, you know what, I want to go to a bar tonight and I hope I have sex with the ugliest man there. <laughs> I mean, um, and, and that's a sad reality kind of that we all have to look inward and say, not that we wholeheartedly agree with incels and what they believe, but there are aspects of this that lead to their suffering. And so initially when I had started studying this, 
I just looked on their websites and I said, oh, these men are gross. Let me study this. Um, and then when I started interviewing them, it really put like a human face on it. And that kind of softened me a little bit, even though if I, st- if I still disagree with 90% of things that they say, I can still recognize them as a person that has struggles. Yeah, I'm going to actually uh, ask you about one of those interview, you know, I- interview discussions as well in, in a little bit. I, I sh- I'm just going to openly say this here. Um, I struggle with this. I do. I struggle with this topic a lot. Because, like I said, there there is a responsibility on us to protect people when we can. And and as you mentioned here, I'll just go ahead and, and, and say it. I mean, you talk about in your study that there is incels have a higher likelihood of fantasizing about violence toward their enemies, right? And again, we discussed this idea of theoretically, you could find reasons to label someone a Stacy or a Chad to a degree. You can. But I actually wanted to do a little research on my own here as well with this idea. And I found a fairly recent study in 2018, and I'll I'll link it in in the episode notes as well for people, that looked at exactly this concept of a relationship between fantasy and and violence and, and mental health. And what this study found was people who fantasized aggressive actions were more likely to ruminate as well and have lower levels of subjective well-being. So again, we find this problem of it's bad enough we don't want people to be fantasizing about violence, but it continues. It just keeps getting worse and worse. There's this kind of trap that they're caught in here. And I bring this up for two reasons. One, like I said, there is a genuine safety concern here, especially, I think, for the potential of violence against women, especially. But we also don't we don't want people to be in this headspace. So how did both of you, when you came across this idea of this connection between incel culture and violence, what kind of conversations did you both have about that? Boy, I feel like we still have conversations about (laughs) that. I mean, there's one part in the methodology, and and this was something that we kind of struggled with a lot in the beginning, is we didn't want to become incel apologists, because we both identifying as feminists don't agree with a lot of the things they say. But there also is a need to understand why people say the things that they say when they're hurt. You know, if we think about being victimized in any way, whether that's through a random criminal act, through, you know, um, an intimate partner violence situation, we, we hurt, we get angry. That's a natural part of like that grieving and overcoming process. But it's tough to, to wrap your head around when it's a group of people that feel as though they're being victimized by society at large. And I think there's an argument here saying that, yes, they are, if we are looking at the gender hierarchy, but there's also an argument here saying that like, well, they're also perpetuating a lot of that victimization. So it it was really tough for us to figure out, well, how do we frame this? Like, how do we talk about this where we're not immediately glommed onto as like, these are the incel apologists, researchers. And I think for us, that came from a place of like, we have to show some level of compassion. Even if we don't agree with the things they say, the the men that were in our study were clearly all hurting. And for some, that was from substance abuse issues, um, which somewhat seemed like it was tied to familial issues. For some of them, it was active bullying. For some of them, it was just failing to meet whatever goals they had. And, you know, like you were saying is, well, how do we balance kind of both sides of that coin? And I think it has to come from a place of, mixing compassion with realism of like, well, yes, I can understand where you're coming from, but that doesn't necessarily mean that coming from this victimized space allows you to perpetuate inequality or perpetuate violence or anger or anything like that. I think that when I, when I interviewed them, um, I used a lot of the skills that I had from my previous experience as a, as a counselor. So just kind of those active listening skills and kind of repeating things back. What I'm hearing you saying is, or that must have been difficult. Um, Because I still think that, you know, in in addition to being researchers, we're still people. 
who recognize that there is human suffering um, and whether or not that is of their own doing or at the hands of other people, um, I still as a person don't like to hear other people struggling. Um, and the other, I think, approach coming into it was, and this this was also about kind of creating these, these interview relationships too, was about saying, I'm not here to fight with you. If I disagree, I'm not, I'm not here to win an argument. Um, and in fact, that's not really my job as a researcher. Maybe I'll push back to ask another question to learn more so that you can say more. Um, but I'm not coming into these interviews to change anyone's minds, to give them advice, to tell them to take a shower or go to the gym or just keep dating. That it was really to tell their stories in a way that other people might not have. And so I think that helped to develop a trusting research relationship with us. And the reason that I still talk to many of those participants today. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I think somehow in all of the discussions that Sean and I had about this article, we did manage to strike a balance between, we don't agree with, they, with what they say, but things are bad for them. So let's talk about how to fix it. Yeah, and if I haven't said it yet, let me say it here, that the thoughtfulness that the two of you put in to how you constructed this study and how and, and how you worded it, I think comes through. And again, it's one of the reasons why I wanted to reach out to you because I thought it was an incredibly thoughtful article, very fair, and I could tell that you were trying to, trying to, to, <laughs> have those two worlds in in plain view. This is a problem. These are humans. And I think you both did a fantastic job with that. And as you both know, I don't have to tell, tell you, that does not always come through in studies. Sometimes it just comes through, like I'm teaching my students last week about bias. And sometimes it just comes through in one way and it can just ruin an article or an important discussion. And I, I thought you both did a, a phenomenal job. I think those conversations you had really came through. We appreciate that. I think we worked yeah. hard on that. Um, in case you don't know, the, the article took about a year and, and a month to get from submission to uh, online. So it was no easy feat. <laughs> really? It, it was a process, yeah. <laughs> And, and part of that process was discuss more discussions around, well, what is your intention with this article? What, how are you trying to frame this? You know, how can we frame some of these things in an academic journal when some of the findings go against the discourse? And that was a big thing we set out was both compassion, but also not wanting to vilify too, is that it is very, and we know this from group after group after group, it is very easy to take a social group and say, we don't like X, Y, and Z about them. And then that's the discourse. That's all it is. There's no intricacies to it. It's just, this is how we're going to treat this group. And when you're already seeing a group that at least perceives themselves as being subhumanized or dehumanized, from a research standpoint, if you're perpetuating that narrative and not sharing their side of it in a way that's objective, is it actually good research? And there's nothing to say that you know, we shouldn't be critiquing this and criticizing, you know, the ideologies behind incel them. But there's also a need to recognize that, like, these are human beings that have thoughts and experiences just like all of us do. And there's a need to represent what those are. And maybe our place or our paper wasn't necessarily the place to take a stance on any of this. I mean, that was one thing we talked about is, well, how do we say, like, we agree with things and disagree with things? And we ultimately decided maybe it's just better to present their words and let people do with it what they will, because inevitably some people will vilify and not want to hear what those narratives are. And some people will want to hear those narratives so that they can do something about it. And I, I think we aimed more towards trying to get to the people that will just see what those narratives are and do something about it. But I don't know that you can ever fully account for one group over the other group. Well, I think this is happening in academia and research, like the research sphere um, and the public in general. So if you just go online and if you go on Twitter and watch what happens, or if you just search for the word incel, either people are using the term incel just now as a synonym for a dude they don't like, uh, 
which is a, another strange iteration of how this community has changed, right? or that there are self-identified incels who are saying things that are undesirable, or even that they're just saying, I'm an incel. Um, and people either give them kind of unsolicited advice or they're mocking them online. Um, and there are groups that that make it their mission to make fun of incels or highlight the, the awful things they say. Um, but, you know, best case scenario, you're trying to shout down a group that says things that are that are wrong and hateful and vile. Uh, but worst case scenario, you are essentially cyberbullying someone based on an identity that maybe people don't have a great understanding of. Um, and that these problems are rooted in self-esteem issues and body image issues and mental health problems. So we're bullying people with depression. And even in that scenario, if you think they're all domestic terrorists, maybe we shouldn't bother them online. I mean, <laughs> maybe we shouldn't like poke the bear. If that is the case, which obviously it's not, right? They're not all domestic terrorists. But if that's the case, don't make fun of them and call them names on Twitter. Like 20 years ago, you wouldn't have like sent a letter to Osama bin Laden, like telling him like what you think of him. Maybe let's not provoke this group that you think is violent. Um, so I think it really is just a larger representation of things that go wrong with technology and kind of social media now and how easy it is to anonymize the people that you despise because you don't see them. I'm glad you brought up that idea that um, sometimes some people I think are playing fast and loose with this term, and you know we've we've weaponized language today. Um, I've spoken with this about with, with other linguists as well about how it just seems to me like I don't, I don't know if we've ever we've ever weaponized it to this level with just one word we can throw it at someone and completely tear them down. And completely remove their their humanity. Um, it, it's it's pretty horrific. And and you mentioned this, the interviews. And I want to bring one up that I think will will kind of make a point here. And the speaker is identified as Stephen in the article, and he talks about being mocked for being a virgin. But then he includes the following. I'm going to quote it. I've heard people say that incels aren't really looking for companionship, that they're looking for social capital or that they want to be seen as a certain way or a certain view of masculinity, that they could brag and be the person who gets a girlfriend. While that may be the motivation for some, I think it's weird that some people can't believe that some just want to do it because they're lonely. They have to make it into something more sinister. Now, you tell me if I'm reading too much into it. Stephen, to me, provides an important distinction for us here, I think. I would want to reach out to this young man and tell him that there's a shared history of mockery, for one thing, right, within this male community, and that you don't necessarily need to identify with the incel community to find a group of people who will stand with you, who believe that this form of mockery is just plain stupid, and pernicious. And I bring this up because my worry is that if we make this something that we routinely do to these young men and, and kind of mock them continually and then start calling them in cell to separate them out, it's not a big leap for me to believe that they might just go over to that side because that will provide them that kind of community that they can you know, kind of hide with. Am I, am I wrong in that? No, I don't think so. I mean, we all, I think we all tend to flock to groups that have shared experiences. Um, we all tend to be friends or, or, you know, close acquaintances, at least with people who have gone through similar things as us. And it, you know, it goes back to these long-term discussions we've had about bullying. Is there some people that think that bullying is a natural practice of growing up? You know, they say, well, if you don't experience bullying in school, you'll never make it in the workforce because there's bullies in the workforce. And that's true to an extent, but we're also through incels, I think, seeing sort of what a, the negative 
impact of all that. You know, it, it's like we were talking about earlier. There's just so much information coming at you from every which way that it's almost like these young men are still experiencing like the grade school bullying, the things where it would be totally normalized to call a friend of yours, like a homophobic slur or something like that. Or, you know, if a friend loses their virginity before you, that's this big deal when you're in high school. But in the real world, people tend to fizzle out of that. They tend to stop caring as much. But when you're in these online spaces where I'm sure it started with a few people who had shared experiences with this, started talking online, and then that picked up and we started talking about this on the internet, social media brought a lot of that like grade school bullying into the online space that you can't really escape it anymore. And we all, I think all of us have probably gotten far too wrapped up in something online. We've all had those that one comment on a video or a social media post or whatever that we did that we just engaged with it for way too long. We got mad. We got upset when we could have just like closed the app or turned our phone off or computer off. But for this group, it's being stuck in that space. And we do talk about how these spaces can kind of be an echo chamber for that too, of when you have a group of people that have these shared experiences And they're constantly talking about like, oh, well, I just posted this and someone responded this here, screenshot, share it on my post on here. It just snowballs and it builds and builds and builds. And it it makes it tough because it's like, what do you do to get people out of those spaces? I think those comments from Stephen and from Mark too, um, really showcase the, the emotion behind it. But it's not just that, they're mad because they're not having sex, which I think is the reductionist explanation of what an incel is. That far too many people are hung up on this notion of incels feel that they're entitled to sex. There is a certain element to entitlement if you're on the forums, but from the interviews that I found, and this may be because they were talking to a woman, right? Um, But from the men that I spoke to, it was about companionship. It was about touch and hugs and having just connections with other people. And in the absence of them, they've found this community. So many of the the people that I've interviewed, in addition to ones after this article was submitted, um, speak to kind of what you said about uh, somebody called them an incel. And then they said, I don't know what that means. And then they found this community. Other people were mocked or recognized that they had a problem with not finding relationships or having sex. So they tried to figure out what the problem is, why, what's wrong with me. And then that kind of led them to the path. And then they found not only a community that supports them and understands them, but then creates kind of this common enemy in Chad or Stacy or red pill, blue pill mess. um, And then gives them kind of reward points in a sense for also having been victimized, right? So I think that we were underestimating the the purpose of these forums and what the users get from them instead of just an opportunity for them to say vile things. There's a lot more to these communities than people want to admit. Yeah, I, I looked up previous to this, I wanted to see because uh, there's a certain intuition I think today that says that young men seem to be alienated more. The research that I found said that it's actually fairly neutral that young women and young men are just feeling incredibly alienated, you know, today in general. I bring this up because I actually wanted to get your your takes on this. Recently, this conversation did come out into the public sphere because of a movie, of all things, um, Actor-director Olivia Wilde had done an interview. I don't know if you both heard of, the, of, of this yet. But she did an interview for her movie, Don't Worry, Darling. And she said the following. I'm going to quote her here. Incels are basically disenfranchised, mostly white men, who believe they are entitled to sex from women, and they believe that society has now robbed them, that the idea of feminism is working against nature, and that we must be put back into the correct place, end quote. From my understanding of reading your article, a lot of what she said there, there's truth in that for this community. There is. My question to you, though, is this. 
Does something like that have potentially more of a negative consequence in in creating the possibility of more young men who feel disenfranchised to, again, just align themselves with this, who maybe wouldn't have been originally? Or does it serve a purpose of getting this narrative out into the community? What do you think? I have feelings about when people discuss themselves. Um, I think the mostly white part is inaccurate. Um, I think, you know, John mentioned that it's a wildly diverse group. Um, most of the forums that get attention um, are English speaking forums and tend to be Western. But we have seen in cell communities pop up in Eastern cultures as well, um, just under different names and actually more pervasive, um, particularly in countries like Japan. Um, and like I said, I think there's a very strong disconnect between things that are said on forums and what people actually believe. And I think that's an absolute area that we need to continue discussing. Um, I have an article under review now about what incels think about the content that people post. Um, and so a lot of it is that it's not just us that say terrible things online, other people do it too, but you just want to pick on incels, which there's that victimization piece again. Um, but then also that it's just a joke, everybody gets so upset. And there's, you know, again, social reward on in these communities for saying things that are heinous. Um, but, you know, these generalizations about incels make me a little bit nervous because number one, a really like disenfranchised or like marginalized guy could read that article about Olivia Wilde and say, well, that sounds like my group of people. <laughs> like, yeah, it is society that's bothering me, that's keeping me down. So let me go join them. And I think we've seen the same things after really high profile incel related or incel adjacent attacks that membership goes up online, either, you know, for people who are curious and just kind of lurking or people that may actually seek these out. So by this sensationalistic reporting about all incels are this and they hate women and they you know, want to force women back into the kitchen or make them sex slaves, then we're really almost recruiting for them the worst type of people that are kind of like shopping around for hate groups to join, um, which we've seen kind of popular cases about that too. Um, you know, whether you're joining the Proud Boys or the incels or men's rights or men going their own way, um, that really it's it's the, the group du jour where you fit in the best. Um, so I have I have serious concerns about that. But then I think in many ways, our article disproves that assumption, though, because one of my favorite lines from Stephen in all the years that we've been talking is when he says, I don't blame women for not having sex with me. I wouldn't want to have sex with me either. Um, and so they recognize that they are unattractive, that they have social deficits, that their personalities aren't great. So they understand why women don't want to have sex with them. They don't like it. But in many ways, I think it's not an entitlement. I think it, it's really just the manifestation of jealousy and sadness and loneliness. Yeah, and I'm very, I'm very concerned about when there's comments like that too, just like Sarah said earlier of poking the bear of, I don't want to say what Olivia Wilde said in that quote isn't true of some incels, but it's definitely not true for the majority. I mean, speaking just from what incels say, they tend to say that they have a lower level of education. They may not understand a lot of social processes and whatever. And so I, I always question, you know, if say that education and stuff was available and say they did learn more about gender inequality and maybe more of like the sociological aspects of society, how much of their rhetoric would they agree with then? And so I don't know that like collapsing all incels in on like this definition of saying like it's a white male that's online and hates feminism and thinks that they're owed sex or whatever, there's a spectrum to it. Are there people on that spectrum that believe that? Sure. But I think that what our paper showed was that there was a lot of people 
on the spectrum that are also just hurting. And it's just like, I know Sarah has another paper about sort of the suicide, suicidal ideation that pops up on forums like incel forums on, on Reddit. And it does show a lot of this hurting, you know, it shows conversations of people talking about like the ways that they would kill themselves. And so I, I don't think for those people on that spectrum that they would necessarily fit that definition. I don't think that a lot of people want to be an incel. I don't think that, in fact, I don't know if anybody necessarily wants to be an incel. And I don't think that necessarily anybody wants to be blackpilled, but they just feel like there's not another choice of, and I, I think for some of the men in our study, they were honest in saying, you know, I did try this. I did get this plastic surgery. I tried to do this. I tried the dating apps. I tried all these different things. And it was just maybe repeated failure after repeated failure. Now, how much of that is just natural dating? I mean, for the vast majority of people, the first person you date isn't the person you end up with for the rest of your life. Yeah, same here. We all have our horror stories. But, you know, there, there is a reality to it that I would somewhat agree with what she's saying in that statement. But at the same time, I do think it is almost the opposite end of it, What where the the complaint or the statement is they're not taking the time to understand like what women go through. I would argue that people aren't taking the time to understand what men go through and how gender norms negatively impact us too. And how that's trickling down into things like these subgroups of men that feel like society's against them and that they can't win. Yeah. I'll be honest with you. Um, Cause I wanted to get your reactions first. I, I found it to be just mocking to a degree. And I can't think of of a time when when I think mocking someone's, you know, suffering is is a good thing. I, I take it too seriously. You know, this idea. And I, I could see where you both talked about this, and I didn't think about that in her definition, this idea of of talking specifically about it being a a, a white, you know, male thing. So what happens if you feel this way and you're African-American, you're Hispanic, you know, you're of the Asian community? You've added another layer to it now where now it says you can't even be an incel. So now you have not no community to go to. And I just found I found the comment to be more of a of a dare. I dare you to continue this community and that has the problem of potentially galvanizing them and making them even stronger in ways that, I mean, we want to pull them out so that they know you don't have to be in this community. You don't have to be here, okay? We can start, we want you in society. We want you to feel your, that you have a purpose, that you have meaning. And I feel like when I heard that comment, I just thought, I could see a lot of young men either joining or feeling like, you know what? You just gave me meaning. I'm going to come out even stronger against you now. Again, it's that you can't escape today, that idea of Nietzsche's will to power. You just gave me something to try to overcome. And to me, that is so dangerous when we could have given them, we need to give them meaning beyond that moment. Well, and it's interesting to me because incels a lot of times are considered a movement, which I wouldn't personally agree that it's a movement or even that it's one particular group. You know, it would be an identity characteristic that some people have. And it's people are so quick to latch on to them as they're a hate group. Well, what we know when it comes to a lot of hate groups is the best way to get people out of these groups is to just get them to engage with whoever it is that they think that they hate. And then they find, oh, hey, we both like basketball, or we both have the same favorite movie, or we grew up two blocks from each other, or the next neighborhood over, or whatever it might be. But when there's just these comments of, well, it's men that are just failing, and they just hate women and whatever, like you said, you're just further isolating this person. Whereas I'm sure if most of these men who they could interact with just the average woman. I hate saying that, but, you know, dating someone that's at the same relative level of attractiveness or the same 
um, you know, income or education level or whatever it might be, I think they might realize, hey, I have more opportunity in society than I think that I do. But, you know, society glamorizes certain types of bodies, certain types of looks. And I think it's interesting right now how every action movie, you're seeing these incredible diet plans and workout routines that these actors are going through, which is saying like, this is what the male body should look like. And it's to me, the same thing that we've been doing with women in modeling for forever. It's just a different gendered form of it. But if you're just telling people that think that, Hey, I have no chance with women that essentially like you're a loser, you just hate women, blah, 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 blah. Why would there ever be that chance to kind of come together and find like shared experiences? I don't actually think, and I think that Sarah's work with incels is evidence of this. I don't think that most people in this group are not willing to engage with people that identify as feminists or identify as women or even researchers or anything like this. It's just the way that people have gone about this is just trying to villainize them to begin with, that it's leading to this isolation and separation. So with speaking about superheroes that you mentioned, a really good example of seeing the change in expectations for body for men's bodies um, is the Superman portrayed by Christopher Reeve versus the Superman that's portrayed by Henry Cavill now. And so it's exactly like Sean said, I think the things that we've been kind of thrusting onto women, now we're doing the same with men that are these unreasonable um, unachievable, really, body standards. But um, I think speaking to Olivia Wilde's point, though, and I, I think to, like, to what you said, that this is not a solution, right? <laughs> Calling them out publicly, a very attractive, famous actress calling out incels publicly is not going to make things better. We have a male vulnerability problem in the United States and in other countries around the world. And by shouting the men down who are being vulnerable and saying, I feel like I'm ugly. You're all telling me I'm ugly. I'm sad. I, you know, I'm on the autism spectrum, all these different things. And they're saying, I need help. I'm upset, even without using the same words. Um, when we shout them down, when we mock them, when we villainize them, then we're, we're pushing down that vulnerability then saying these are the consequences of male vulnerability. Um, so in that sense, I think we're still as a society and individually perpetuating that hegemonic masculinity standard um, to say we still want our men to be strong. And even further, I don't know that we have a lot of resources for when men are suffering, because I still think there's such a stigma to mental health treatment um, and such limitations with healthcare. And so when you know, we have incels who are not educated, employed, or trained, um, so they're neat. Um, they're not having, they don't have insurance to cover treatment. Um, uninsured treatment is wildly expensive. So I think it's it's this bigger issue and everything's entwined, but there aren't, I think, there's a significant lack of resources for men who need help, period. Yeah. Well, we're we're moving toward the end here of this, and I've got basically one more question for you. Now, I was I was described by a colleague once as annoyingly hopeful. So here's where this is coming from. From this, I like to try to end my my episodes on a positive note because I I, I believe we have the ability, we have agency in a lot of ways to create positive change. So how do we both, or how do we, we pull together these young men? How do we pull them out of this detrimental mind space, let's say, and, and also prevent it from growing beyond where it is? Uh, I'm, I guess I'm happy to dive in first on that. Um, I mean, I think a, like a lot of things in life, we just have to have more love and compassion for each other. Um, I find it so incredibly interesting that we are probably at a time in human history where we are more connected than we ever have been, yet we feel, to me at least, more divided than we ever should be in this situation. And that's along any which axes you want to look at that. But I think 
There's a lot of people trying to tackle the incel problem in a lot of ways. Some places, like I know in the UK, they're trying to tackle teaching young men differently about, you know, gender norms and, and rules around sex and all that. And maybe that's one way to tackle it. I don't know. We're kind of squeamish about sex in America, so I don't know if that would necessarily take off. But I think rather than vilifying, just having that realization that like these people are hurting and they're hurting just like we're all hurting, you know, we're all coming out of COVID and figuring out what this new world is going to be like. And I think rather than jumping to say, you know, these are men who hate women and fail at sex or whatever, rather than saying that, try to open the door for conversation, even if it's conversation that's going to be uncomfortable and knowing that there might be people that just actively disagree with you. If we're going to change the way that men deal with their vulnerability in society, we have to open the door for that vulnerability. And if we keep it shut, these conversations are never going to happen. And I don't see any which way that incel them is ever going to get quote unquote better from that. So you're ending with pessimism. (laughs) (laughs) Story of my life. Yes. (laughs) Sean will see your optimism. (laughs) Yeah. I have never been called like annoyingly optimistic. So you can ask Sarah that from working with me for a couple of years. Um, I think if there's, anything that makes me hopeful and this is a wildly kind of personal thing um if incels are willing to talk to me and granted this is a podcast right but i'm a 30 something asian woman who's like a real loud mouth feminist (laughs) and if incels are willing to talk to me um there's hope that we could still keep doing this um and that we could learn more and that we can talk to more people and really start engaging in evaluations and interventions. So what can we do to help? Let's be creative about this. And I understand that, you know, there's limitations to what we can do as researchers and what people are willing to do. Um, As someone who moved to a completely different area, you know, six years ago, I didn't know anybody. I was like, I'm not going to like join a kickball league. That's absurd. Right? Like, how am I supposed to meet people? So I think as you get older, there are these challenges. But I, I am still hopeful in that maybe social media will find its way. And there will be ways to bring people together in positive light. I think if anything good came out of COVID, it's that so many people are doing virtual telehealth now. Um, and if so, if we could open up that as an option to more people, make it more affordable. If Mark Cuban wants to include that in his prescription <laughs> drug company, let's do that. Um, so I think that there is a demand and a move toward corporate social responsibility and social good and mental health care for both men and women and and other people too, that I think that maybe that's how we move forward but I still think we have a long way to go so I'll end with optimism but like cautiously skeptical (laughs) yeah bring it down Sarah bring it down (laughs) gotta get back to my angry jersey roots (laughs) hysterical how both both of you had to do that you're like up 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 and then you're both like well hold on a second (laughs) realistically speaking there is suffering, there's anger, there's resentment, there's cynicism, which is my nemesis. I hate cynicism with a passion. I talk about it all the time. I can't, we can't do it. And you mentioned the telehealth thing, and I'll just say this. I know some people sometimes are cynical of that. You know, like, what do I get out of it? You know what you get out of it is you get the conversation. And there is a power to, I say this to my students all the time, even just when they're writing papers, Read the paper out loud once, just out loud in a room, and I promise you, you will hear things in that paper you did not hear before. And just the act of speaking to that individual, that professional individual, and and vocalizing problems can have a huge impact on the healing process, on how people feel about themselves. So I'm a big proponent of, of reaching out, and even through telehealth, having that conversation. I think that we just need, you You mentioned, Sean, this idea of, of, in some ways, we're more disconnected 
than ever through social media in that ironic kind of way. And I do think also, to Sarah, to your point, I think eventually social media will kind of have its own due due date when we kind of put it in a in a more proper perspective, I think. And I think that's going to be because we have to. It's not going to be a choice. I think we're just going to realize we kind of can't do it this way anymore. You know, I think that's that's eventually what's going to happen. And it'll be a generational thing. One particular generation will start that ball rolling. They'll just say, we're not going to do it anymore. And then that'll force businesses to rethink as well to try to reach them. And then I think I think eventually it's going to be put in a better context. So that's kind of just where I, I, I land on that issue. Um, I encourage everyone, I encourage everyone listening to this to read this article, read your work, because it is incredibly balanced and thoughtful and, and really well done. And, and I really I give you a lot of credit for that because it's not easy to go out there and have that level of, of compassion as well. It, it, it really isn't. Sarah, Sean, thank you so much for joining us today and, and sharing this, this knowledge with us. Thank you. Thank you for having us and giving us a place to talk about this in a balanced way. Pew Research shows that young adults today are choosing an unpartnered life. Now, I've had my share of highlights over the course of my 42 years, but there has been no greater adventure than finding, dating, marrying, and sharing my life with my amazing wife, Eve. Has it always been easy? No. Do we still have our disagreements here and there? Absolutely. But there's also a depth of love that you simply cannot experience without making a strong, meaningful commitment to each other. My wife makes me a better person in ways that I didn't know I needed to be, and she challenges me with an understanding of the good that I'm capable of bringing to the world. The fact that young adults today would even consider not seeking a meaningful partner is disheartening to say the least. If you're a young adult, or anyone for that matter, who feels like you're either not worthy of a meaningful relationship or that there are no people out there with whom you can establish a meaningful relationship, don't believe it. Anytime you put your heart out there, you open yourself up to the potential for rejection and hurt. But if you don't put yourself out there, you close yourself off to something truly amazing. If you enjoyed the conversation, throw some support my way by subscribing slash following, leaving a kind comment where applicable, and sharing the episode with others. I really appreciate it. Also, don't forget to check out the links in the episode notes. Until next time, try to keep one foot firmly planted on neutral ground. And have a great day.